Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure to have you here. My hope today is to give you some context to begin your studies of Iranian government and politics. To that end, I'm going to walk you through a brief history of modern Iran, and then I'm going to dive into what I see to be some of the most vexing political challenges that the current Iranian regime faces. Never knowing exactly where to start, let's start here, right? Iran is the world's only official theocracy. Now, as we know, a theocracy is a form of government in which, ideally, all laws are grounded in religion and in which the clergy exercises supreme power. Now, I hate to do it, but we have to pause already. I don't want you to think that by virtue of Iran being a theocracy, that that makes Iran somehow simple, easily understandable. Because that's hardly the case. Just like China, and perhaps like all countries in this class, Iran defies simple understanding. Theocracy does not equate to simplicity. The Iranian political system is deeply, deeply complicated. And you'll soon see how, if you don't already know how. And one way in which the Iranian system the Iranian theocracy is complicated, is that though it is a theocracy, the Iranian system is robustly democratic in a great many ways. Yeah? Now, though the ulema, or religious scholars, have long played a vital role in Iranian society, they traditionally haven't really aspired to direct political control. So it's in this way that the Iranian theocracy is a revolutionary break from tradition. And despite the way it might be portrayed in the Western press at times, Iran also demonstrates a sort of revolutionary break from Middle Eastern politics more broadly, right? Though Islam has been politicized in many of Iran's neighboring states in a diversity of ways, Iran is indeed the only theocracy in the neighborhood. But it is not easygoing. The Iranian theocracy has been challenged since its birth, and the Green Revolutions of 2009 illustrated and catalyzed battles between secular and religious factions. And these are battles that we're going to look into throughout the course of my talk. Now, the Islamic Republic of Iran was established in 1979. That makes it a country younger than yours truly, right? Iran was established just a few months after a popular revolution united the poor and middle classes where religious and secular citizens overthrew Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, the last ruler of the country's monarchy, and, incidentally, a puppet of the United States government. So the Iranian regime is a pretty new regime. It's a 41-year-old regime. The Russian regime is pretty new. 
Yeah. It's a 20-year-old regime. The Chinese regime is new. It's a 70-year-old regime. So you have, in a way, under certain lens, a couple of newer countries in this class. So the Shah was overthrown in 1979 in a revolution that was led by the charismatic clerical leader Rahola Khomeini. Khomeini opposed democracy on the grounds that sovereignty belongs to God and to God alone. That law is not made by man. Law is made by God, and it is interpreted by the ulema. And this, this is the heart of Sharia. But despite Khomeini's negation of secular democracy, Iran really developed a lively political system during his reign. His reign was the first 10 years of the Iranian regime, 79 to 89. And during his time as supreme leader, Iran was characterized by like presidential, parliamentary, and local elections. So you have democracy and theocracy vying for power in Iran. Yeah, so we have a complicated political system, a blend of theocratic and democratic elements, which was born of a complicated, long, and illustrious history. Let's dive into that history. Right, The question we always ask when we begin to study one of our case studies is, what do we need to know about Iranian history, about Chinese history, in order to develop a nuanced understanding of their contemporary political problems? Well, here's my best take at what you need to know, or what you should at least consider about Iranian history if you want to understand contemporary politics in Iran. Let's start here. Persia is over 2,500 years old, right? Now, Iran, Persia, Iran, I'll use the terms interchangeably. I'll get into the politics of name usage there, but not quite yet. Iran, like many non-Western states and most Middle Eastern states, was never colonized by Europeans. By and large, Iran managed to maintain its sovereignty, So, like China, Persia is an ancient empire. Like China, Persia faced a real challenge from the West during the age of imperialism. And, like China, for the most part, Persia managed to repel Western invaders. The current Iranian state was established in the 16th century by the Safavid dynasty, And one of the legacies, perhaps the primary legacy of the Safavid dynasty, is Twelver Shiism. I'm going to dive a little bit into some real deep history here, but I'll dive out as quickly as I dive in. Okay, it's 628 in the Common Era, and the Prophet Muhammad died. The nascent Muslim community needed to establish a successor Out of this debate of who the successor to Muhammad should be, a community called the Shia 
deemed it such that the only worthy successors of Muhammad should be his direct descendants. And these descendants are called imams. Okay, The third imam, Hussein, is of particular importance because his martyrdom in 680, in the Common Era, symbolizes the Shia struggle against injustice. And that's really the heart of the Shia Islam tradition. It is a struggle for justice in a world that is inherently unjust. Remember, I said that as we move forward in this talk. Now, some Shia sects believe in an unbroken line of imams all the way to the present day. But most Shia believe that the 12th imam was the last of the imams that were direct descendants of the prophet. We got a problem, though. In 874, the 12th imam disappeared, but he didn't die. Rather, he's a messiah that will come forth to establish a just rule at the end of time. So, Islam, and Shia Islam in particular in this case, is a messianic faith. Right? Not unlike Christianity, there is a belief that the Messiah will come at the end of times to save the believers. And though I have all sorts of things to say about that, I will not. I will only say that this presented a dilemma, because without an imam who had the legitimacy to rule... Now, this is a big question, but it was more of a theological question than a political problem because Shia were always a minority, and thus they never really had the right to wield much political power. But with the establishment of the Twelver Shia state by the Safavids in the 16th century, the unavailability right, of the one truly legitimate leader became something of like an existential political problem. Here's the problem. In the absence of the 12th imam, who had the right to rule? Yeah. In the absence of the 12th imam, who had the right to rule? And that very question is at the heart of the Iranian political problems today. Now, the Safavid dynasty fell in 1722 for all sorts of reasons that are outside of the purview of this talk. But Iran was in the grip of civil wars, influential clans vied for power, and throughout this secular power struggle, the ulema, the learned clerics, were the ones to maintain, let's say, relative stability. And one thing I want to point out about the ulema in the Shia tradition, is that they lack a hierarchical structure, unlike the Catholic Church. And because of this, they have significant disagreements over both secular and religious matters. And we'll see this in our studies of modern Iranian dilemmas. It's really important that you understand that there is no consensus, no consensus whatsoever among religious clerics in Iran. There is no pope who makes edicts and issues decrees from the top down. There is 
a lot of infighting among the ulema. And it is in part, at least, because of this perpetual infighting that it was nearly impossible for the Safavid dynasty, which fell in 1722, or the Kahar dynasty, which fell in 1925, to develop stability. The ulema were paradoxically, and in many, many complicated ways, a source of perpetual instability, as well as in many ways a source of stability. And Iran needed to be stable, because during the age of imperialism, Iran was caught between rival expansionist powers, Russia and Britain. Now, educated people in Iran knew that Iran's lack of development would render them vulnerable to imperialist encroachments until or unless Iran caught up with the West. Now, educated Iranians knew that Iran's lack of development would render them vulnerable to imperialist encroachments until or unless Iran caught up with the West. And they kind of argued that the first step to catching up with the West, was to establish rule of law. And one reason they came to this conclusion is because when Russia, which was Europe's only major autocracy, was crushed by Japan, Asia's only major constitutional power in 1905, it became clear to them that a constitution was a necessary part of the path towards development. And this raises this really interesting question about a constitution. Like, what would the 12th Imam do? What kind of constitution would he offer the Iranian people? This engendered a profound and, dare I say, existential debate among the ulema one of whom Ayatollah Muhammad Hussein Naini argued that rule by the people, as opposed to rule by the 12th Imam, was a lesser evil than monarchical rule had turned out to be. There was a heated, contentious, and again, nearly existential debate. And in 1906, the Kahar dynasty issued a constitution this constitution, I'm afraid, proved, let's say, ineffective because, well, first, it was sort of like a confederation in the age of imperialism. So the major imperial powers were likely to chip away at Iran because it didn't have a unified structure. It was more confederal in its imagination. It was also ineffective because Britain and Russia literally conspired to destabilize Iran. Why? In some part because they were concerned about Germany and the German interest in Iran. So they made secret agreement after secret agreement to divide Iran into two spheres of influence. And during World War I, the British and the Russians repeatedly violated Iranian sovereignty, and they did it again during World War II. And by the end of World War I, local warlords were challenging the central government control of Iran. So much so that some religious leaders openly defied constitutionalism. And in this melee, 
in this age of anxiety, in this era of political instability, bearing in mind the fall of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, in 1921, Reza Khan, a military officer, a hero to some, he named himself the Shah of Persia after staging a coup against the Qahar dynasty. And as the Shah of Persia, he launched an ambitious modernization campaign, nationalizing the public education system, nationalizing the railway system, creating a healthcare system. And in this way, Reza Khan is, according to some, the father of modern Persia. Reza Khan was voted in by an assembly, and he became the new Shah. In 1926, he was crowned Reza Khan Pahlavi, and this marked the beginning of the Pahlavi dynasty, and his eldest son, Mohammad Reza, was named the crown prince. Now, in 1935, again, in the age of nationalism, in the age of fascism, in an age of tremendous anxiety, Persia was renamed Iran by the decree of Reza Khan. And by the mid-1930s, Reza Khan's dictatorial approach began to cause dissent. Reza Khan was a dictator. He was a dictator in the way that Chiang Kai-shek was a dictator, in a way that Stalin was a dictator, in a way that Franco was a dictator. Such were the times. Not to forgive or excuse him, but to contextualize dictatorship in Iran in the global context of dictatorships. And we know where those dictatorships led. And in 1941, although Reza Khan declared Iran a neutral power during World War II, Iran wanted nothing to do with that mess, Iran's British-controlled oil interests were largely maintained by German engineers and technicians Khan refused to expel German citizens despite the demands of the British. Not quite sure where the British had the sovereignty to demand that the leader of Iran had to expel Germans, but the British did so, and Khan refused. And in September of 1941, following a British and Soviet occupation of Western Iran, Khan was ousted, and his son, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, succeeded him on the throne. This is a humiliation. The leader of Iran, and a hero to many despite his many, many imperfections, was ousted by a foreign power. And it would not be the last time this would happen in Iran. And understanding the impact of foreign meddling on Iranian government and politics is essential to understanding contemporary challenges in Iranian governance. So I said in 1941, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi succeeded his father on the throne. And between 1941, when he came to power, and 1953, three main political camps emerged. It wasn't this tidy necessarily, but three main camps emerged. The first 
was a pro-Western kind of conservative establishment led by the Shah. The second was a pro-Soviet Tuda party. Yeah. And Tuda means the masses, right? So it's kind of a communist party. And the third was a nationalist party called the National Front who demanded sovereignty, in particular, sovereignty over the Anglo-Iranian oil company. I call it the Anglo-Iranian oil company because that's what it's called. But don't let the name fool you. The Iranians didn't have much control over the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Now, in 1951, a member of that national front, the nationalist prime minister, democratically elected prime minister Mohammad Mosaddegh, attempted to nationalize the British-owned oil industry, as he was elected to do. And the Shah removed Mosaddegh from power. But Mosaddegh regained power and the Shah, in this political fracas, abdicated out of fear for his crown and his life. About two years later, in 1953, the Shah returned to Iran when General Fazlola Zahedi, with backing from the CIA and the MI6 in the infamous Operation Ajax, overthrew Mohammad Mosaddegh in a coup d'etat. We're talking about a democratically elected prime minister. Truly a national hero. A household name. Violently overthrown in 1953 in the heat of the Cold War. He wasn't a communist. He was a nationalist. If you're interested in Operation Ajax, I would turn you to Michael Kinzer's book. Kinzer's a reputed American journalist and historian. The book is called All the Shah's Men, and it's a gripping, compelling narrative that he weaves. The general, Zahede, for his part, he became prime minister for two years for having led this coup before becoming an ambassador to the United Nations for 10 years until his death. Sort of an interesting postscript. So it's worth taking a few minutes to dive into the Shah and Shah, or the King of Kings, the last Shah. And if you're interested in learning more about the last Shah, one of my favorite short histories is Richard Kapuscinski's The Shah of Shahs. It's maybe like 120 pages, and it talks about the last year of the Shah's life. Uh, Ray Takia uh, wrote a book called The Last Shah. Totally worth diving into. If you're my student, you can borrow it from me. I've got it. So the Shah of Shahs was a U.S. puppet. He ruled from 1953 to 79 when the Islamic Revolution took him out. His rule was autocratic, repressive, and brutal. He was 33 years old when he took power. He was young. He was ambitious. He was autocratic and nearly fascistic in his worldview. He had no taste for civil society and no patience for opposition, secular or otherwise. 
And because he was such an opponent to free speech and free assembly and civil society, the mosque became the only place in Iran where people could expect to speak freely. This is an essential point that I hope you can develop some interest in and empathy for. You know, you wonder sometimes, and from a Western context, how Islam could have become politicized, say, in Iran. That was the only place where political conversations could happen freely because of the 26-year reign of a U.S.-backed puppet. Now, the U.S. was concerned about this, and they had an uneasy relationship with the Shah. Eisenhower had an uneasy relationship with him. Kennedy, Johnson, they all had uneasy relationships with the Shah. Jimmy Carter, in particular, had an uneasy relationship with the Shah. And they were concerned. The historical record is clear. U.S. presidents were concerned about the ways in which the Shah treated his people. But they continued to support the Shah, thereby exacerbating anti-U.S. and anti-Western sentiments. Why are some Iranians so anti-Western and so anti-American? Because for 26 years, the U.S. supported an autocratic psychopath who had no regard for their dignity or rights. Now, in part inspired by U.S. concerns, in 1963, the Shah implemented what he called the White Revolution. And this was an aggressive campaign of social and economic westernization, you know, promoting industrial growth, giving women the right to vote, nationalizing land, uh, modernizing the rural landscape. They even had like profit-sharing models for workers and industry. But the White Revolution was divisive, and frankly, it was too little too late. And the failures of the White Revolution led to vocal opposition, including a populist nationalist, Ayatollah Khomeini. And Khomeini from rural religious regions, vehemently criticized the last Shah. So much so that the Shah exiled him to Najaf in Iraq. This is a predominantly Shia city. The newly crowned Saddam Hussein, just come to power in Iraq, had no patience or taste for Ayatollah Khomeini. And so he, in turn, exiled him to France in 78. And on the 1st of February, 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini made his triumphant return to Iran to overthrow the last Shah. And overthrowing the Shah, though it was not going to be easy, was perhaps not going to be so difficult because by 1977, the Shah had terminal cancer. And he was flying to the U.S. regularly to get treatment. You know, he hadn't built with all of the oil money that he had, with all of the global connections that he had. He hadn't built a hospital good enough for himself. And in the last-ditch effort to ensure a smooth transition of monarchical power upon his death, 
he began liberalizing the political system, you know, opening up space for dissent, right? A little bit of glasnost, a little bit of perestroika. And as happened to Gorbachev, the masses preferred the abolition of the regime to the liberalization of it. And tribunes of the masses, intellectuals, students, bazaar workers, clerics, industrial workers, and in the end, state employees openly defied the monarchy. In response to this defiance, the Shah vacillated between military repression to making belated concessions. And ultimately, he was forced into exile in January of 79. Khomeini's faction was the wealthiest, in part because people paid tithes to the ulema, and the most organized. And so it was on the 1st of April 1979 under Ayatollah Khomeini's guidance, Iran declared itself a theocratic republic guided by Islamic principles. The constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran was adopted via a referendum. 99.5% of people who voted voted in favor of the constitution. There is some historical scholarship that says it's something like 80 or 85% who voted in favor of the constitution. But in either case, the Constitution received overwhelming support from the people. And again, this is a Constitution that speaks to the virtues of Veliat i Faki. Veliat i Faki is the guardianship of the jurisprudent. Veliat i Faki is the cornerstone of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Veliat i Faki argues that those most fit to rule in accordance with divine law are the ulema, for these are the people who know divine law best. This notion of Veliad Ifaki is influenced in substantial part by Khomeini's intellectual fancy for Plato, and in particular Plato's ideal of philosopher kings. But in defiance of Plato... And in deference to moderates who participated in the revolution, a parliament elected by universal suffrage and a presidency elected by universal suffrage was maintained. And so the Islamic Republic was thus born, how should we put it, like a mixed political system, a fusion of 12er Shia doctrine and Western popular sovereignty and division of powers. And from 1979 to 1981, secularists and Islamists struggled against Khomeini for power. But the history books seem to read that Khomeini had the upper hand throughout this struggle. And if he didn't, his power was consolidated when Iranian unity was necessitated by Saddam Hussein's 1980 invasion of Iran. You know? His power was also consolidated because his revolutionaries engaged in an act of political symbolism which, while abhorrent, proved potent 
in winning the hearts and minds of the Iranian people. The Iranian revolutionaries seized the United States Embassy, known in Iran then as now as the den of spies and the center of all conspiracies. And while this wasn't part of the plan, they ended up seizing 52 hostages in the American Embassy for 444 days, well over a year. And this sickening and traumatic affair is etched into the hearts and minds of American foreign policy makers today and in Iranians of that same generation. The seizing of the U.S. Embassy was among the more revolutionary facets of the Islamic Revolution. But the Iranian Islamic Revolution could have gone any number of ways. But as the history played out, it was the Iran-Iraq War, this eight-year imposed war for the quote-unquote sacred defense of Iran, that really established the path of the revolutionary generation. Iraq invaded Iran after years of territorial disputes, particularly a dispute over the Shat al-Arab waterway. Two million Iranians were mobilized, 700,000 soldiers and 200 civilians were killed. We're talking about a million killed in a population of, at the time, 35 million. One in 35 Iranians were killed, not to mention the severely wounded, not to mention those who survived with post-traumatic stress, the widows and the orphans, and the walking wounded who continued to roam the streets of Iran. And in an effort to unite the Iranian people, Ayatollah Khomeini violently suppressed debate and dissent in Iran, leaning into what he called absolute guardianship, or veliat amotlak. He felt obliged to do so because of the international context of the war. The Iran-Iraq war was two oil giants at war. For that reason, more than 30 countries offered aid mostly to Iraq. The United States and Israel funded both sides of the war, though leaning strongly towards Iraq. The Soviet Union supported Iraq. The former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger said, and I'm quoting, it's a pity they can't both lose. And the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, in his own way, echoed that very clearly. They both did lose. Substantially. But one thing that Iran won was a sense of national pride and a sense of national patriotism and a solidification of the fear that their conspiracy theories about the West were indeed true. It is indeed true that the United States and Israel funded both sides of the war. 
It is indeed true that the Reagan administration got caught red-handed for violating the 1983 Boland Amendment to sell arms to the Iranians, their purported enemy, and to use the money from those arms sales to fund the Sandinista movement in Nicaragua. And if you've studied U.S. history with me, you've walked through this particular history. The Iran-Contra scandal is invariably a dark chapter in U.S. history. But it's an even darker chapter in the history of the Middle East. The West was setting up Iranians and Iraqis to kill each other. Saddam Hussein, who is one of the 20th century's great villains, by any reasonable account, so far as I'm concerned, was not only given conventional weapons, but was given chemical weapons to use against Iraqis, which he did. And the Americans and the Brits either blocked or watered down UN resolutions that condemned Iraq for using chemical weapons against Iranians. And, by the way, using chemical weapons against the Iraqi Kurdish populations. And while I could talk to you about the Iran-Iraq war at some length, for the sake of time, I will direct you to Michael Axworthy's book, Revolutionary Iran. And again, if you're my student, you could borrow it from me anytime. This war created the so-called war generation of martyrs. The survivors of the Iran-Iraq war are in their... 50s and 60s and 70s, and there's this Martyrs Foundation, which is one of the most powerful parastatal foundations in Iran. The Martyrs Foundation aids a quarter million people, um, giving veterans and the descendants of veterans preferential housing and education opportunities and loans. It's a huge organization. They have almost four billion bucks in capital reserves, a diverse portfolio. 30,000 people work for the Martyrs Foundation. And the Martyrs Foundation, incidentally, is um, an agent of elite recruitment. Mehdi Karoubi uh, was the president of the Martyrs Foundation, and he later became the speaker of the Majils. In fact, he's the speaker of the Majils as I record this. And as I record this, almost every day, conservative newspapers in Iran carry testimonies of war veterans as a constant reminder of the havoc that Western powers have wreaked on Iran. Now, I should say, in an effort to be as balanced as I can in a short talk, that the seizure of the U.S. Embassy and the 444-day hostage crisis animated the Reagan administration to act against Iran the way they did. Vengeance is a powerful motivating force. That said, the 444-day hostage crisis was in an effort to revenge the 26-year U.S. mission to repress the Iranian people through the Shah. So it's not really my hope or effort in this talk to adjudicate this once and for all. But I would like to, at the very least, 
make some sense of the reasons why Iran has gone to such radical lengths to distance itself from what it perceives to be the toxic West. So again, that war was from 1980 to 1988. And just a couple notes about the post-war milieu. Uh, Khomeini died in 1989, the same year the wall fell, the same year of the Tiananmen Square massacres. And there was a real fear that when the supreme leader died, that events in Iran could turn out like the events in Beijing or the events in Moscow. And it is in part for that reason that throughout the 1990s, the Rafsanjani administration engaged in their best effort at rapprochement with the West. And the Khatami, the president after Rafsanjani, engaged in a massive and laudable reform movement. And to modern eyes, it seems almost impossible to see how close the United States and Iran were to becoming amicable. Look, Iran's one of the top five oil producers in the world. The United States loves oil. The United States has some enemies in the Middle East. Iran, as we'll soon see, is surrounded by enemies in the Middle East, right? Stuck between Iraq and a hard place, which is Afghanistan. It's a cheap joke, but it's true. They don't have amicable relationships with the Sauds. It makes perfect sense that the United States and Iran, if they could put some difficult history behind them, could move forward towards, if nothing else, a relationship based on realpolitik. And that was the path of Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State under the Clinton administration. That was the hope of Rafsanjani and Khatami. And that was the direction things were moving throughout much of the 1990s. You know, Saddam Hussein became America's enemy number one in the Middle East. The Iranians and the Iraqis had a lot of bad blood. It made perfect sense for the U.S., and Iran to move forward together. And that's the direction most Iranians thought it was going. And then came 9-11, which no Iranian had anything to do with, at least in any direct way. And it was to the shock and the horror of the Iranian people when in January of 2002, in his State of the Union speech, George W. Bush put Iran on the axis of evil, as he called it, with Iraq and North Korea. Iraq, all right, Saddam Hussein got a little big for his britches, invaded Kuwait once, twice, three times. North Korea, total pariah state, okay, I got it. But Iran... And we could discuss why that is. But not here. <laughs> and the effort to punish Iran 
And the next set of humiliations, including but not limited to sanctions that Iran had to face, led to the rise of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, a populist, nationalist, anti-American president of Iran from 2005 to 2013. And though Ahmadinejad is gone, and Hassan Rouhani, the current president, is much more balanced and measured and thoughtful. This is the legacy he has to deal with. Look, the Iranian people are an ancient people. They're a proud people. Whether in the fields of mathematics, or physics, or poetry, or war, the Persian people have brought to civilization a great many advances. But despite that pride, despite the greatness, despite the specialness that antiquity should confer, the Persian people faced a great many humiliations throughout the 20th century. They suffered from legitimate conspiracies to undermine their sovereignty. And they operate from a position of pain and shame and humiliation. And that's a hard position from which to operate when you got pride. And that problem shows itself when we look at the current policy challenges of the Iranian regime. I'm going to run through a handful. And when we study Iran together, you'll see the ways in which these challenges really put the Iranian regime to the test. The first challenge that the Iranian regime faces might be the most obvious to my dear listeners. The Iranian regime needs to promote human rights and rule of law. And the Freedom House Index, Iran is not free. They have a score of 17 out of 100. If you got a 17 out of 100 on one of my exams, we would have to sit down and have a talk. Someone needs to sit down to have a talk with the Iranian regime about freedom. Civil society is repressed. They have the second highest execution rate in the world per capita. Second only to, only to, China. I know what you're going to guess. And in the realm of human rights and rule of law, the Iranian regime faces the challenge of promoting much more gender equality. In order to do that, a second challenge that the Iranian regime faces is resolving some of the constitutional paradoxes that it suffers from. I mentioned Ray Takia. I mentioned Michael Axworthy. I, I think I mentioned Kapuczynski. I'm almost certain I did. One of my favorite writers on Iran is Laura Secor. She writes for The New Yorker regularly. Uh, she wrote a book about Iran. And in one of her contributions to The New Yorker, I believe, she said that the Iranian political system is not a dictatorship. It's a traffic jam. And as we continue to study Iranian politics, you'll know exactly what she means. Iran needs to balance its religious and its secular principles. 
And perhaps that means exchanging freedom for salvation. Perhaps not. The Iranian regime needs to balance its democratic and its anti-democratic paths and tendencies. And to do that, they need to find some sort of a dialogue between the reformers and conservatives. The problem is that the Constitution was created in a particular context. And the cantankerously competing institutions the Ayatollah Khomeini conceived just can't function in his absence. And these competing institutions that Khomeini conceived of need to act fast. Because though Iran does have a lot of oil, that oil won't last forever. Iran suffers from what we call the resource curse. Oil comprises 85% of Iran's export commodities. Oil is 50% of Iranian government revenue. And while it is the case that oil wealth is distributed better in Iran than it is in, say, Mexico or Nigeria or Russia, this dependency is problematic. The government's dependency on oil and the people's dependency on the government is problematic. To say nothing of the problems in the environment, the Iranian environmental landscape is nightmarish. You have desertification, deforestation, massive water and air pollution. It's such a nightmare. And that's a challenge that the Iranian government needs to face. And in addition to dealing with the oil problem and the environmental problem, Iran has to deal with population problems. The Iranian population has doubled from 37 million to 82 million since the revolution. So since I've been alive, the Iranian population has doubled. And with that comes a massive urbanization between 1950 and 2020, the urban population went from 25% of the population to 75%. So you have a huge population boom, you have a huge urbanization boom, and get this, 60% of the Iranian population is under 30 years old. 60% of them are under 30. That's a young population. Dangerously young. And this new generation isn't imbued with the revolutionary ideology of their parents. You know what they want? Iranians under 30? They want what you want. And their government isn't giving it to them. And that's why we have a massive brain drain in Iran. Two million Iranians have left Iran since 1979. 25% of Iranians with college degrees live abroad. They live in Toronto and Tarangeles, yeah? the residents of Toronto and Los Angeles affectionately referred to the neighborhoods in their cities where there's these huge Persian populations as Toronto and Tarangeles. And these are vibrant and beautiful diaspora communities. But that's no bueno for Iran. 
some of their brightest, most motivated people have left them. And so the Iranian government is challenged with creating policies that make smart, well-educated, motivated people want to stay. You know, they could probably take some lessons from China in that. Of course, there are limits to the lessons we want to learn from China. But just putting it out there. Now, one thing that might bring the people back is if the Iranian government caters to the cumulative cleavages that they've created. You have substantial minority populations, Kurds in the West, Arabs in the Southwest, Baluchis in the Southeast, and they're not doing as well as their Shia, Persian country folk. It is indeed the case that only two-thirds of Iranians speak Persian at home. I will say that was one thing that I was surprised to learn, in fact, pleasantly surprised to learn when I began studying Iranian politics you know, 15, 17 years ago. It's a pretty diverse place. That's surely not what I was raised to believe. Yeah. Of course, you know, having grown up in the 80s, I was led to believe that Iranians all had pitchforks and horns and they were out for American blood at all times. And though these are stories that I'd be more likely to tell in class, I will just say that I have, just by virtue of my curiosity in Persian history and culture and politics, had the pleasure of making friends with a great many Persians and um, haven't found the horns or the pitchforks yet. And of course, they haven't seen the horns or the pitchforks in this Western Jew. So, you know, human interaction, it goes a long way. But I digress at a time when I should be trying to drive this train into the station. One of the major challenges that Iran faces is evolution, right? Iran had a revolution in 1979, and the revolution ate its children. And the revolution created spectacular instability, which Iraq and the United States and Israel took advantage of. You might want change in Iran, and there's a lot of Iranians who want change, but they want that change through an evolutionary, not a revolutionary process, because their experience with revolution was brutal. It was horrible. It was awful. It was horror awful. And so one of the challenges that Iran faces is what that radicalism of the revolution should evolve into. You know, the Iranian revolutionaries of 30, 40 years ago, they're in their 60s now. They're the ones running the country. What have they learned that they can apply to governing this challenging and important country? Well, one thing I hope that the revolutionary generation will have learned is that the business of government goes on. And one challenge thus that the Iranian government needs to face is just governing, you know, providing health care and education and roads, right? Reducing poverty and inequality and unemployment, 
uh, trying to create a meritocracy and a more efficient bureaucracy, reducing corruption, developing rural areas while still keeping an eye on the cities to which the future belongs. You know, I don't know how the 12th Imam precisely would handle all of these governing problems. But these are real problems and real challenges that the Iranian government needs to face. And to do that, they have to reconcile Islamist fears of West toxification with the rising global marketplace that Iran is part of and subject to. And if they want to take on that challenge of dealing with West toxification, Iran has to grapple with some really profound foreign policy conundra. They have to deal with their neighborhood, the Sauds, the Turks, the Israelis, the Egyptians, the Iraqis, the Western presence in many of those places, increasingly the UAE, Kuwait, of course. I mean, this is a troubled neighborhood. And it's a real intermestic problem that Iran faces. And it seems to me that if Iran's going to be able to grapple with its neighbors, it's going to have to find a new path to grappling with the quote-unquote great Satan. Because that great Satan has been punishing Iran with great sanctions on and off for a long time. And it is, I'm afraid to say, sometimes all about the Benjamins, baby. And to the extent to which the United States is capable of strangulating the Iranian economy and suffocating the global marketplace for Iranian oil, it's possible that all of the political and cultural challenges that the Iranian regime faces will be nothing but an uphill climb. Now that said, there could be a path for Iran towards China. And surely the Chinese regime isn't going to wince at human rights issues in Iran. I don't know that China cares so much about whether Iran develops a nuclear bomb. I will say that it seems to me that the West would be better off having Iran pivot westward than eastward. But I'm not sure if that's in the hands of the West to decide. But since I brought it up, you know, the elephant in the room through much of this talk has been Iranian nuclear ambitions. Now, of course, the Iranian regime claims that its nuclear ambitions are for peaceful purposes only, that their nuclear enrichment program is not for weaponry, but for power, though they have some plausible deniability, there's reason to be suspect of their intentions. But that's a substantial challenge that the Iranian regime faces right there. How, if at all, to pursue nuclear weaponry, and at what price? And perhaps this helps to lead us back to the beginning, which is a good place to end, if we want to understand Iran's nuclear ambitions, we have to understand the decades of humiliation that they incurred. We have to understand that they are a Shia minority in the Sunni majority Middle East. We have to understand that they're stuck between Iraq and Afghanistan, 
and Israel is not going to be an ally anytime soon. And while history is not destiny, I hope that our dive into the complicated waters of Persian history helps to establish for you some context and some considerations from which to commence your inquiries into Iranian government and politics. And with that, I bid you peace, kindness, health, happiness, and if at all possible, a little bit of sanity. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time.